We hope this podcast has done more than keep you company on the treadmill or along your commute. We hope it's a small reminder of the beauty of God and the people around you. At Church on Morgan, we serve a community with a wide variety of experiences and beliefs. We respect where you are, and throughout the year, we rarely mention giving on here, not because it isn't important, but because we know this resource is often shared with folks who are wondering if they can trust the church again. If you are one of our generous listeners, thank you for your support. Would you consider making a year-end gift to continue to support this ministry? When you give, you help to create a safe space for someone who might be giving church one last chance, and we are so grateful. To make a contribution, visit us at churchonmorgan.org and select Give. And now, we invite you to take a moment of quiet before we dive in. So uh, the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> typically I'd jump up here, I'd read a text, we'd be off and running, and for the last couple of weeks we've been trying something a little bit different, just carving out a moment to get a smidge centered, both with the chaos of the kids leaving the room, but um, I was reminded of another uh, reason why this moment feels especially meaningful, at least to me, which last night, I don't know if y'all have seen on Netflix this week, this week, last week, uh, there's a new series that's come out about um, the drugs we take, and the first episode's on uh, Xanax. Uh, anybody seen this deal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, last night I was watching it, and they were talking about how um, trying to make sense out of why there seems to be such an uh, epidemic of anxiety in our culture and among us as a community. And so much of this is a riddle and whether it's always been this way or different, but most of the folks kind of who work in this field um, say that things are definitely different than they once were. And that perhaps part of the reason why we uh, are such anxious, nervous people is that we spend an unprecedented amount of time in our heads compared to every other era of people who've come before us. That the vast majority of our life is spent looking at a screen and we are mentally on all of the time in a way that those who came before us were much more connected to their body and to work and, and, and to the land than we are. Uh, they didn't spend hours and hours and hours scrolling more and more and more content. They didn't get the news from every corner of the world every 15 seconds, right? And there's something about us being trapped in our minds uh, that takes us out of the flourishing that's intended when we're in our bodies. And so as a church, um, A, we care about people's flourishing, but also this, I don't know if you've heard the story of Christianity, but kind of at the center is this idea of resurrection, which is to say that there's this bold proclamation that our bodies deeply matter. In fact, in the face of all other world religions, no other religion makes such a strong um, take such a strong position around the body as Christianity does. We, we don't believe these are just shells or husks or they just get in the way and one day we leave them behind and we float off to some much better experience, but that we will, these things are permanent in some sense. That the human being is not fully human without a body. And so as such, every week, we, we do a lot of tangible things. We'll, we'll touch water, and we'll eat bread, and we'll drink juice, and, and these are all ways to connect us once again with our body. And one of the things I think is so helpful about just taking a few moments and getting silent and still is that it gives us the opportunity to check in with our bodies again. Uh, where are you? How are you feeling? Where are you feeling it? What's the intensity of it? 
It's amazing how many of us will just plow through a whole week and never take stock of what's going on here. And, uh, and so if you would, let's just take a few moments kind of in the quiet of this room to get centered, to plant our feet on the ground, to remember the goodness of being a created being. And that God might speak to us this morning in the fullness of our humanity. Would you hear now reading from the 11th chapter of Isaiah, verse 1 through 10. The prophet writes, A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. The Lord's Spirit will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. and By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. And on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations will seek him out and his dwelling will be glorious. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So typically, um, we tend to focus in the Gospels. Uh, We've got three or four options on any given Sunday as we follow the lectionary. There's often an Old Testament lesson and a psalm and a New Testament letter uh, and then a Gospel reading. Typically, we're in the Gospels. For Advent, we decided to hang out in the Old Testament lesson, which is all found in the book of Isaiah. Uh, This wonderfully gifted and imaginative imaginative, uh, poet who operated, whose life was very much uh, prophetic. Uh, Somebody who could see things and long for things and name the longing of things for people in such a profound way that it it changed the way that they lived their everyday lives. And uh, Isaiah is like um, full of the greatest hits when it comes to Christmas, right? So if, if you were doing your like family card thing and you were looking at all the templates, uh, Isaiah includes greatest hits such as Prince of Peace, uh, they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us, and a virgin shall conceive a child, right? Uh, this guy wrote all the hits. Uh, did so, by the way, six to eight hundred years before Jesus was ever born. And so when we come to the time 
of Christmas and of Advent and preparing to celebrate this season, there's something about the dreams that Isaiah mysteriously carried within himself and shared with his larger uh, community that we point to and go, I think that's what Jesus was about. I mean, I think this longing that Isaiah had that continues to, to rest in each and every one of us uh, is being answered, it seems, in some significant way in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so for Advent, we have decided to slow down and take a peek at some of these profound images and this rich poetry of this prophet who's naming for us the things that we most long for and desire in this life. Uh, last week, uh, Sam talked about his image of taking uh, swords and turning them into plowshares. This idea that we would take all the weapons of this world and somehow beat them into pruning hooks, things that we might tend the land with instead of destroy one another. An image so powerful that it, it remains at the center of kind of our longing as humanity for the kind of world that we hope to see, right? And, um, and so this morning, we're given two really beautiful images, two that show up in artwork and have for, you know, thousands of years. The first image in the first four or five verses is this image of a, of a leader, some sort of like unprecedented leader who ushers in an unprecedented world. And the way that this leader gets his start is that there's, Isaiah says, it's like a, a dead tree stump. It's like a tree that at one time had all this opportunity uh, but something came along and just cut it down to the base. It was a complete dead end. There was no, no hope of life left in this stump, and yet this shoot, this branch begins to grow out of it. And, and from that comes this fulfillment of this beautiful vision of justice, this leader that these people thought that the story had already been written, that there were, they were no longer going to live into the fullness of what they'd been invited to be and become in the world. They had given up on themselves, and yet somehow some leader will rise up from their ranks, right? A beautiful picture of the way that especially us Christians often understand who Jesus might be, right? And then the second image is one that uh, I'm sure even though many of us tune out often, and I get it, listening to somebody else read in public is kind of difficult work, right? But I bet if if I were to ask you right now, many of you have some frame, like some sentence, some phrase from what I already read this morning still bouncing around in your head. There's something about that second vision that's just so darn sticky and enchanting to us, right? It's this vision that we often refer to as the idea that one day the lion will lay down with the lamb, right? Uh, so beautiful. Uh, problem is, Isaiah doesn't say that the lion lays down with the lamb, um, he says that the wolf lays down with the lamb, and he says that a leopard will lie down with a young goat, and he says that a lion will eat straw. But my best sense we can get is that somewhere along the way, a preacher was searching for some alliteration to help the people remember, and the two L's felt helpful. So he said, the lion will lay down with the lamb. And since we don't read that close most of the time, we're like, great, I love it. That's what it said, right? <laughs> the, and, and so when we think about this vision of a, of a lion laying down with a lamb or any of these other animals, predator and prey, um, we, we can't help but be somehow inspired, moved. Uh, it, it, it creates wonder even in the most cynical of people, right? Uh, and yet at the same time, if we're being honest, it, it also feels like total fairy tale land. Like uh, a couple years back, I, I bumped into what I've, I now see all over the place, but this famous director uh, had this to say about this vision. He said, well, the lion may lay down with the lamb, but the lamb's not going to get much sleep, right? Um, and, and I can't read this passage without that voice in the back of my head, 
Right? This is sort of how we approach the idea of something like this. Uh, and yet, Isaiah has got this thing inside of him, this hope, this all alternative reality, this possible world that feels impossible, and he can't help but name it. And uh, some nearly 3,000 years later, we're still enchanted by it. Um, and part of the reason I know we are is just this week in my Instagram feed, I, I saw one of these videos that I'm sure you've seen before, but this one was specifically of a egret, which is like a crane, like a bird, uh, catching a ride on the back of an alligator down a river, right? Like usually the alligator's eating these birds, but for whatever reason on this day, they just called a truce and the bird gets on the back of the alligator and it's just like riding, you know? And, and these sort of videos fill TikTok. They're, in fact, this morning, uh, many of our kids, I think as they begin to enter the story, are just going to watch a stream of these videos. There's a whole show on Animal Planet just made up of these unlikely uh, friendships in the animal kingdom. These little sparks, these moments that they seem so silly, but we can't look away. And we're so charmed by them. There's something about it that just feels so hopeful or, uh, to us, right? And... Um, and yet it might actually be more real than we think, right? That these might not just be strange anomalies. This past Sunday, um, I, was, uh, I was watching 60 Minutes, as you do when you're over 40. And um, in the second uh, story, uh, which they do three, but y'all can Google this, see this later and find out. Uh, the second story was one of an evolutionary biologist who has been doing his research at Duke University just up the street. And, um, and they brought him on because of the groundbreaking work that he's doing around uh, studying the, um, the beginning of dogs, what we come to know is what we know as dogs, right? Like the dogs that hang out in our house. And he's been curious, fascinated by where did dogs come from? When did they show up in the life and culture in the way that we know them today? How did that happen? And what might it reveal to us about our own kind of evolution in the world that we find ourselves in, right? And so... Um, he basically lays out, I'm going to kind of butcher this, but this is the short version of the story that he's found in the last 15, 20 years studying dogs and their origin, is that somewhere around 20,000 years ago, there were a, a very small number of wolves that, for whatever reason, risked getting closer to a group of humans. And uh, these were not the majority, it was just one or two, but they sort of broke away from the pack. And even though probably everything that they'd been taught and experienced up to that point was to stay at a distance from humans, and the way that humans remain at a distance from wolves, right, uh, for fear for both of their sake, these wolves began to venture closer and closer to humans. And as they did so, they found out that these humans leave a lot of really useful waste around. And so they began getting a pretty great meal on the cheap. And as they did this, over time, they also found that they could get more of those scraps and they would be kind of, you know, uh, receive retribution much less often if they also put some of their aggressive ways behind them. And so these wolves began to be a little bit more friendly and a little less violent and they got more and more scraps and food and humans got more and more used to them. And somehow over time, this small group of wolves kind of eventually become what we know as dogs. 
And the point of his research is that many of us, most of us, the way that we were taught sort of uh, evolution is survival of the fittest and kind of Darwin's theory, right? And this isn't exactly what Darwin said, but the way that we often understand it, make sense of it, is we believe that survival of the fittest means survival of the meanest, uh, survival of the biggest, of the most violent, right? And what his work is putting forward is Perhaps survival of the fittest isn't about survival of the meanest. Maybe it's survival of the friendliest. And that the real evolutionary edge for dogs was the ways in which they put down some aggressive, violent behaviors and became social animals. And what that reveals about our own place in sort of the animal kingdom, right? And he goes on to say, and so 20,000 years ago, there's basically zero what we would understand as dogs in the world. And today, there are over 1 billion. And the best we can tell, there's about 150,000 wolves left. And so this is sort of beginning to push back and challenge our own sort of bias about what actually, where is this story headed? Like, what does the future look like? What does it look like for us? What does it look like for animals? Is the way that you secure kind of a lasting um, legacy and future, is that by being the most violent, mean, uh, intimidating creature on the planet? Or might it be that it's survival of the friendliest? I, I couldn't help but think about that just this morning as I was getting ready to come here. Uh, got up kind of early, still dark. My son had sort of crawled into our bed. I jump in the shower. I get out. And as I walk through the bedroom, knowing what we we're going to talk about this morning, I couldn't help but notice as my like 12-year-old son, dead asleep, vulnerably laying there, has our 90-pound golden retriever's head on his chest, right? This was an unimaginable world for our ancestors. They couldn't for a second have imagined that a day would come where an animal with that capacity would curl up in bed with a child. And yet, some 3,000 years ago, Isaiah is beginning to feel this thing, name this other way of being in the world. It, it made me wonder, and if you will, just buckle up for a little bit of like the weird train here for a second. But like, I mean, what, is, what, what does that mean about the, like, what might the world look like in another 20,000 years? or 60,000 years, or 160,000 years. I mean, can you imagine a world in which, like, you've got a lion in your backyard, right? Where, like, a grizzly climbs into bed with your children, you nuzzle up with, that when we go visit the beach, we're kind of catching rides on the back of sharks, you know? It sounds absurd, and if this isn't the weirdest sermon you've ever heard, I'd like to hear what it is. Like, please, <laughs> share this. Um, but as uh, Sam pointed out last week, Madeline Langle calls Advent the irrational season. And, and so this morning in Advent, we, we continue to press into these irrational dreams and question whether they might actually be more true than we imagine. That something of the God who we believe is ahead of us and inside of us has inspired us to stay enchanted by these glimpses of another world. Uh, in the um, devotional that I recommended last week, and many of you picked up by Brian Zahn, kind of the Advent devotional, he talks about this very passage. And in it, he says, uh, essentially, like, I'm all for a really weird 
kind of dreamy scene about what the animal planet might look like 100,000 years from now. But my hunch is Isaiah was less concerned with kind of the lion's diet and the security of the gazelle as he was with our own predatory ways, right? And, um, and his point is this. He says that uh, what he believes Isaiah is doing in this passage is something called zoomorphism, which is this literary device where we talk about anthropomorphism, where we look at animals and we try to put like human traits on them. We try to make animals more human-like. Zoomorphism is the opposite direction. It's like when you take a human person and you put them in an animal char- character, right? So like an example of this that he gives in the book is um, Disney's animated Robin Hood. If you all ever seen this movie, it's probably like 30, 40 years old now. I grew up watching it, loved it, right? But in it, you have Robin Hood, who actually is a fox, because he's like sly, right? He's stealing from the rich, giving to the poor. And then you got this, uh, this king who's a lion, and he's got this really deceptive advisor who's a snake, who's always whispering in his ear, right? Some of this coming back. And then you've got like all the bad guys are like crocodiles and vultures, and all the good guys are like rabbits and turtles, right? It's, it's sort of this kind of story that's being told, that's taking these human characters, and in many ways, the impact of those stories that we, we've just learned to not hear, to not see the challenge that's being presented to us, once we put them in kind of like animal land, all of a sudden, it's like this back door, right? And so Isaiah begins to say, like, imagine a world where the lion would lay down with the lamb, and, bef- and about the time that we have fully taken this thing all the way, we're being reminded that, like, that our own predatory ways are so much more severe than anything we'd ever see in the animal planet. That that we're being pressed with this question of like, are you more like a lion or are you more like a lamb in this life? Are you more like the snake that's kind of whispering into the ear of power how they might further advance and abuse those underneath them? Or are you innocent like a dove, right? Like what is your story in this life? How are you participating and playing in this violent kingdom that we find ourselves in? The truth is that um, I think Isaiah would say that animals could never imagine the extent to which we prey on one another. They couldn't imagine sort of the the absurdity of our level of violence. I've got um, a middle school son. I don't know if you remember middle school, but it's absolute hell. Um, that's just sort of, and, um, and there's probably an occasion on almost every single day where you, you're reminded that middle school is where you, you really like learn these tactics. You, you learn that the world is broken up into predator and prey. And, and you really quickly try to figure out how do I stay on the top of this thing and not on the bottom of this thing? And what are the tools and tactics that will enable me to do so? And as a parent, I've, I've got to be honest with you, like as these stories show up in our living room, like everything in me wants to whisper in his ear, don't be prey. Here's how to be the predator. Let me tell you what you're going to do next time. This is how you exert the strongest survive, right? And Isaiah's standing here challenging that very way and system. And saying, if this peace, if this picture of peace, this profound peaceable kingdom is what you deeply long for, then, then that isn't going to be the solution. And, uh, and I will say, if you're really moved by the animal piece, uh, my hunch is the two actually might be connected. It may not just be one or the other. And Walter Brueggemann, this um, great Old Testament writer, sort of points out that um, every distortion of humanity 
that we experience is played out in creation. It, in, that the distortions of flourishing that we see in creation is actually a result of the distortions in humanity. That in many ways we are at the center of the story. And what does that mean? So the lion is eating the gazelle because I'm like, I kind of, you know, snuck in there and, and got this property for under asking using some of my prowess. And I'm like, maybe, you know. Um, like if you've ever sort of uh, just consider any uh, experience you've ever had with an abused dog, right? That here's, here's a puppy that's born into the world and some people treat it poorly and violently and the next time this dog engages with other humans, it lashes out and is violent. I'm, I'm not so sure that the story that we're living in isn't wider and me, more ecological than we imagine. That the peace that you long to see on Animal Planet may actually start with the ways that we're loving and serving each other. The degrees to which we're becoming predators and prey. And so Isaiah says, uh, if you want to transform this dog-eat-dog world, there are two things that are worth taking very seriously. The first is found in those first five verses. It turns out that those two images of a different kind of leader and a different kind of kingdom of a stump that has a shoot that grows out of it is actually related to the second image with all the animals. He says in the, in the first, he says, if you want uh, this world to come and to flourish, there's two things you should do. First, you need to pay attention to the needy. Look out for the poor. Work on their behalf. Have eyes and ears for the meek. Speak up for those who don't have a voice. In essence, he says, if you want to see this kingdom, this peaceable kingdom, take root in this world, if you want to be a part of the future that's already buried inside of you, that the way that you do that is you look out for the prey in this world and you care for them. That, that you embrace the lamb and you call out the wolves. That th this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is how we advance the future that we all are longing for. And then second, in the second image, we're, we're reminded of kind of the offensive way of Jesus, which is that the victory of God that we so desperately need and want in our world is not achieved through violence, but vulnerability. That... Duke's dean of the chapel, Luke Powery, um, has sort of given me this, this phrase, and he preaches an incredibly powerful sermon about it, this idea that the, the future that we want comes through vulnerability, not violence. That Isaiah's dream is that we would actually subvert the survival of the meanest. That the invitation for us this Advent, as we continue to reflect on the dream, is that we would exchange our own predatory behavior for vulnerability. And it's actually way more offensive than you think. And you only need to look at the image that's been painted for us. This isn't just vulnerability with your small group of trusted friends who have earned the right to experience your self-revelation. Um, the, the image that Isaiah is putting forward is vulnerability particularly with those who are likely to devour you. The, the image of, that Isaiah is writing is an image of literally sleeping with the enemy. That this is the way to the new peaceable kingdom. This is the risk that it would take, that, that we would wager believing, expecting good things from each other instead of evil. That, that we would begin to live out of posture of trust instead of a posture of suspicion. This is 
almost unthinkable for us. In fact, as I tried to survey my own kind of like memory of like, where have I seen anything like this? Where have I seen a human being live this out in the world? This kind of ridiculous vulnerability uh, right in the face of the predator, right? The image that keeps coming back to me, and I kind of wish we had a big screen so I could show you this famous photo, but it's this photo, it's like burned in my mind of Ruby Bridges. And many of you may know who Ruby Bridges was. My colleague Lisa Yaboa for years had this picture above her desk when we worked together. But Ruby uh, was the first African-American student to uh, enter desegregated schools in New Orleans. And there's these photos of this little girl um, walking through lines of angry kind of white mob, screaming the most hateful things at her, being escorted by police up into this school. And it was here in this sort of profound act of bravery and humanity that the world began to crack and to change, that that the ways of the predator were exposed and came to be seen for how violent they really were. And slowly, inch by inch, uh, we have moved forward, not all the way, but to where we are today, by the witness of folks like that. It's also the witness of Jesus, born into this world, as vulnerable as it gets, to an oppressed people group who spent his life sticking his hand in every snake hole of this world. Ultimately, would be killed, but would defeat death in the way, on the way, and not with vengeance, but with gentleness, with his humanity, with his vulnerability. So Church on Morgan, uh, on this Advent, on this second Sunday of Advent, I want to invite you to hold on to the dream that was inside of Isaiah and remains inside of us. I want to risk inviting you into a vulnerable advent of of gentleness towards those you would seek to prey on, of giving up our own predatory ways so that we might realize a more peaceful future. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.